go to the Lord in prayer as we begin to open up his word and see what he has for us there this morning. We approach before you, Father, humbly, but boldly, because we know, Father, that by the blood of Christ, we have that opportunity to be in your presence. Spiritually, Father, we are there even now. Although physically we are still separated by a body of sin, I pray, Father, that uh, through the Holy Spirit, we would not give our attention to the temporal. We would not let the world that we can see and touch dominate our thinking, for it is passing. Father, it is so easy to see it as permanent, to wake up every morning and look outside and consider our day, and even if just for a moment, consider that that's all there is. And the irony, Father, as you teach us in your word, is that it's exactly the opposite. What we see is what's not real. What we touch and what we experience in this world, Father, is passing. It's not according to your ultimate plan. It is a temporary state, Father, brought about by sin. But there is a permanent place that you have for us, Father, in eternity. A place that is awaiting us even now. It is our spiritual home. It is the new Jerusalem that waits to come down on the appointed day. Father, give us a heart and a mind and eyes to see that eternity and to live our life here and now with the mind that says one day we will be there with you, even as you are with us now spiritually through the Holy Spirit in us. So, Father, we go into your word this morning, grateful that we have it and grateful that we have a chance to study it. But, Father, we pray that it would not merely be something that we take and use in the temporal, but it would be something, Father, that changes us eternally, preparing us, Father, for the day we will Bring all that we know to bear in service to you eternally in your very presence. Let that be our heart this morning. We thank you, Lord. You've gathered with us so many other Christians of like mind who desire to study your word. We pray, Father, that their gifts would enhance our understanding and be a part of our own growth this morning as we fellowship with them. We pray, Father, for those who are not here due to sickness. You know who they are. And we pray, Lord, for healing, that they would be quick and... and uh, Complete healing for those who are sick. And bring them back to us next week if that be possible. And Father, in all we do, we praise you and give you the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, turn with me, as Karen mentioned, if you need a Bible, there's one in the back. But hopefully you know enough by now to bring one. And turn with me to Luke chapter 9. Today, as I said, we're moving into chapter 9. We finished chapter 8 last week. And you all know this, I'm sure, at least I hope you do, that when the Gospels were written, when, when every book of the Bible was written, the man who wrote it did not sit down and put chapter and verse numbers next to what they wrote. That came later. But I believe that when it was added, it was done by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, every bit as much as the original text was placed in, on page by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So in other words, though the original writer didn't do it, I don't think that means it shouldn't be considered a part of how God has orchestrated the presenting of his word. And it's interesting today because as we start chapter 9, there is a clear division taking place in the book as we're going to follow through the Gospel of Luke. Let's do a little moment of history. You know we've been following through the Gospel of Luke some major themes. Luke has presented us first with a theme of substantiating that Christ is who he said he was, that he was the Son of God. That's been an emphasis of Luke all along. You remember he detailed over several chapters the fact that Jesus could demonstrate who he was and and, uh, whose authority he came in by the kind of teaching he did and by the kind of miracles he performed. There's been a steady effort through the first series of chapters within Luke to show you that Jesus is truly the Son of God. Secondly, Luke moved in later chapters into a second theme of how Jesus was going to contend with the Pharisees over how the message he brought was very different than the message that the religious leaders of that day brought. So that naturally created tension. The Pharisees saw Jesus as a threat to their power structure, and they were determined to bring him down. Now, that's a theme that's essentially gone underground now for a few chapters. It'll come back here shortly. Third, in chapter 7, we saw Luke introduce another theme of how Jesus was preparing his disciples for ministry, how the disciples themselves were going to have to be the ones to perpetuate the church after Jesus leaves this earth, after his resurrection. And so we're going to continue to see that, and particularly in this chapter, chapter 9, we see more of that, of Christ beginning to show his disciples not just what it means to be a believer, but what they're going to have to do in carrying the gospel forward. And then today, in chapter 9, 
Luke, as he continues to build on that third theme, is going to introduce a fourth one. And the fourth one really doesn't get moving right away. It's going to just be kind of referenced in passing in this chapter. We're going to see it come into play much greater in subsequent chapters. And that fourth theme is really how Jesus is preparing these 12 immature, untrained men for the very fact that he is going to face the cross. That Jesus himself is going to die on the cross. In fact, from about chapter 9 all the way until about chapter 17, 18 of Luke is a relatively famous section of chapters within the gospel because Luke, more than any of the other gospel writers, really details the cross as a destination and Christ moving surely to the cross. And as he's moving there, knowing that that's why he came to earth ultimately, to die on the cross, he's got to prepare his disciples for the fact that when that happens, it's a part of the plan. Don't let my death on the cross stop you from going forward, but rather see it as a necessary step. In fact, it is the reason you will be able to go forward. And he has a very difficult task. I mean, imagine how difficult that's going to be for the disciples after Jesus is gone. They're going to face persecution, even the same death as Jesus himself, many of them. And yet they have to go forward. How do you prepare somebody for that? How do you prepare, prepare them for it without scaring them away from it? Without them wanting to go do something different? <laughs> How do you get them to understand the necessity for it? And that's what Luke begins to demonstrate over the next series of chapters. Today he's going to focus primarily on theme number three, if you're keeping track. And that is the preparation of the disciples for their ministry. Let's look at the beginning now, chapter 9. And he called the twelve together and he gave them power and authority over all the demons to heal and to heal diseases. He sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to to perform healing. He said to them, take nothing for your journey, neither a staff, nor a bag, nor bread, nor money. Do not even have two tunics apiece. Whatever house you enter, stay there until you leave that city. And as for those who do not receive you, as you go out from that city, shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. Departing, they began going throughout the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Now, Herod, the Tetrarch, heard of all that was happening, and he was greatly perplexed because it was said by some that John had risen from the dead, and by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen again. Herod said, I myself had John beheaded, But who is this man about whom I hear such things? And he kept trying to see him. At some point, following the events of chapter 8, Jesus calls his disciples together, as we hear at the beginning here of chapter 9. He gives them, we are told, power and authority to do, much as Jesus himself had been doing all along, to cast out demons and to heal people from their disease. With these powers, he sends them out to proclaim the good news. So, in other words, the powers were essentially the way by which they would have the ability, the audience, to proclaim the good news. And he gives them the very specific instructions that must have jumped out at you as we read through the passage. He says, take nothing with you. Don't take anything. He says, they can't take money. They can't take food. They can't even take extra clothing. And they're to depend on the people to whom they're going to actually minister in the towns that they visit to actually put them up, to give them a stay. They're not to stay in hotels. They did have hotels in that day, not the way you and I would envision them today. But there were commercial establishments designed to let travelers have a night to stay. They're not to use those. And they're not even to have money so that if they're tempted, they might use one of those. And if they're not received, as we heard, they're to essentially leave those towns testifying against them that they have not received the kingdom that they were offered, the good news. What is Jesus doing here? Before we look at all the details, let's just ask the simple question. What's he doing? Why is he sending these guys out this way? Isn't it kind of premature? Wouldn't you think maybe you ought to wait until maybe he's about to be crucified? That's when he would give these kinds of instructions? It seems way early in his ministry to just send these guys out on the loose. Wouldn't that be like taking a doctor who's in training and just saying, here, go, play, go do some surgery for a while and come back and tell me how it goes? Well, in the sense of a secular view, in the sense of what men are capable of, yeah, it probably would be premature, right? But in the sense of what God is capable of, is he really dependent on how good we are? Is he dependent on how trained we are? Not especially. So one answer here is fairly obvious. Remember, we've been talking all along about how Jesus is already looking forward to the day he's going to depart the earth and how these men are going to have to 
come behind these 11 men on the day he's gone. It'll be 11. 11 men are going to have to come from behind him and take over the ministry of preaching the good news outside of Jerusalem. When that happens, they're not just going to have to remember the lessons that they've been taught. It's not just knowledge. And they're not just going to have to appreciate the persecution they're going to face. Yeah, they'll need to understand that too. They need to understand the power that is available to them from God himself in order to ensure the success of the mission. In other words, they need to understand in whose power they're going to be doing these things. Do you understand if I train you, if I prepare you, if I beat knowledge into your head, if I explain to you the importance of it, and then I send you out, you're likely to assume that your success is going to be dependent on how well you've prepared. But if I send you out when you're not especially prepared, when you really only begin to understand what it's about, and then on top of that, I put you in the vulnerable position, he's put these men, which is no food, nothing to depend on, no money. Now, who do you attribute your success to? Well, if you're wise, you'll know instinctively it's God himself working through you. The power that you have is not your own. Do you understand this is a perfect time to be sent out, not just because they're too immature to know better, but also because any earlier, they really wouldn't have had any ability to do this. They wouldn't have even known who Jesus was. But any later than this, and they would have faced too much persecution, too much opposition. You heard about Herod. Herod the Tetrarch is already concerned about this man who seems to be doing a lot of what John the Baptist was doing. So if they had waited much longer for this opportunity to go out and test their their abilities in, in evangelism, they might have faced so much persecution that they'd find themselves all in jail at the end of it. Here, it's a good opportunity to get them out in the field before too much attention is being given to what they're doing. But there's a second answer. In other words, the first answer is he's trying to give them an appreciation for what they can accomplish in God's power. But there's a second reason here. And that is that this is the opportunity for the Jewish nation to receive their Messiah. This is the point in time when God is giving the Jewish nation their opportunity to receive their Messiah. Now, we all know how the story ends. We know that Jesus is ultimately rejected by his people. He goes to the cross. And we know that this was God's plan from the beginning. It's not as though God is surprised that they reject his son. The prophets actually foretold that the Messiah would be hung on a tree, Isaiah says, a reference to the fact that he would be on the cross, that he would have to be sacrificed for the sake of men. This is not news to God. But God is also going to bring about a time of judgment for the Jewish nation because they rejected their Messiah. When the Jewish nation rejects their Messiah, we are told that they will be judged as a result. God tells us through Paul in Romans 11 that God purposed for the Jewish nation to reject their Messiah so that the Gentile world, who really wasn't even looking for a Messiah, would have an opportunity to know him. And that was to fulfill a promise God gave Abraham back in Genesis, Genesis 22:18, when he said, through your seed, all the nations would be blessed. You see, if the Jewish nation had received their Messiah in the day he came, then they would have been received, God would have healed them, we're told, and they would have ushered in the Messianic kingdom. We literally would have jumped from that point in time all the way to the point of Christ ruling on the earth, to the Messianic, the, the millennial kingdom. But of course, if that had happened, the intervening 2,000 plus years of opportunity for the Gentile world would never have taken place. You and I would not be in the body of Christ. There would have been no church. It would have been the Jewish nation and the Jewish nation alone who would have been given the opportunity to enter into eternity. And it was God's plan that through Abraham, all the nations of the world would be blessed, not just the Jewish nation. And in order for that to happen, the Jewish nation had to reject their Messiah. So the disciples are going to go out to the surrounding towns. They're going to be used by God to preach to the Jewish nation. The Jewish nation is going to hear what they're saying. And yet, the Jewish nation is going to reject that truth. Why? So that God may be just in his judgment of them despite the fact that this was always a part of his plan. You see my point? They are going to be judged justly for rejecting the truth that they heard and did not accept, though it was always God's plan that it go that way. We're going to study this rejection a great deal more in chapter 11, because in chapter 11 of Luke is when you actually see the rejection confirmed and Christ essentially take back the offer of the kingdom. So that's two chapters away. We'll get there in a short time. For now, though, it's important that we go back to this chapter and understand some of the details for that first reason, for how God is preparing the disciples for their ministry. Luke says they received two things. They received power and they received authority. Power, dunamis in the Greek, 
The word literally means miraculous strength. It's actually from a Latin root that we get the word dynamite from. It means something of supernatural ability. Secondly, they're given authority. Exousia, exousia. It means dominion. It means jurisdiction. The authority to act. Luke alone mentions authority. The other Gospels mention only the power. Luke wanted you to understand that it was not just that they had God's supernatural ability now. They were actually being given a temporary opportunity to use it. It's important to understand each of those independently. So let's look at them just for a moment. Power. Christ is given the, uh, giving them power to cast out demons. Power to heal. They are to perform these miracles, we've already said, in connection with preaching the good news. What you need to understand is men do not normally have these powers. This is such an important teaching because today there are many places in the Christian faith where you can find people telling you exactly the opposite. The scripture would tell you that only under circumstances where God himself grants this power would men expect to have it. Absent God's granting of it, you don't have it naturally. Believers are not born into the body of Christ with these kinds of powers. If that were true, then we would all be doing these things regularly. Under normal circumstances, they lie outside our power. But we can gain these powers in one of two ways. In one of two ways, men can gain the power to do the very thing that you see Jesus giving the, the apostles here the power to do. First, from God himself. That's obvious, right? God grants it here. He can do it anytime he wants to anyone he wants. And it's obvious, as you've seen here in Scripture, that God has done it not just for the apostles here and then in the time of Luke's gospel, but he's done it many times before and after. For example, he gave Moses the power to perform miracles when he confronted Pharaoh. He gave Elijah supernatural abilities to raise people from the dead at one point in that ministry. He gave him another ability later to call fire down from heaven, if you remember the story in 2 Kings. God granted Joshua and the people of Israel supernatural ability to defeat their enemies. I mean, you can go to almost any book of the Bible and find an example of God doing those kinds of things, granting supernatural power. In the time of the early church, in Acts, Acts is full of stories of the apostles in the early church having these same kinds of supernatural powers because God granted it to them in that day for specific reasons. But we'd be ignorant if we didn't acknowledge there is a second source for that same kind of power. The enemy. The Satan that you hear about in Scripture, the evil one, he has the ability to grant these same kinds of powers. How do we know that? Well, first of all, he is of spirit. He is an angel, a fallen angel, obviously, and a very powerful one. His power is not greater than God. Scripture makes that clear. It's always subject to God's authority. He is not outside of God's authority. But we know from Scripture, God gives Satan essentially a leash to do certain things, to have certain abilities, to exercise a certain amount of control. Remember when Moses had the power before Pharaoh to turn a staff into a serpent? What did Pharaoh's magicians do? They did exactly the same trick. Only in their case, of course, their staff was eaten by Moses' staff, demonstrating clearly that God's power is greater than the enemy's. But make no mistake, it wasn't some parlor trick. It wasn't some special little toy that when you shook it the right way, it started to look like a snake. No, Scripture says their staff became a snake every bit as much as Moses' did. You think God was doing that for them like he did it for Moses? No. That was the enemy contending with Moses, but God making clear that his power was greater. In Jesus' day, there were men who would go out and heal and command out spirits just like the apostles. We're going to hear that later in this very chapter. And they're doing it without necessarily any evidence that it's from God, perhaps from the enemy, perhaps as a way to confuse the people. The scripture says this kind of power is called divination or sorcery or witchcraft. It's specifically called out in Deuteronomy 18.10. God says this, There shall not be found among you anyone who makes his son or his daughter pass through fire, one who uses divination, one who practices witchcraft, or one who interprets omens or a sorcerer. The nation of Israel had become corrupt in part because of divination. They had fallen prey to the local culture's use of it. And they had started to rely on it. And the Lord judged them over it. You remember the story of Saul. Saul, toward the end of his unfortunate life, turned to divination rather than relying on God to try to understand what he should do. The prophet Samuel says this to Saul in 1 Samuel 15, 23. 
For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and insubordination is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. In that verse, you can see the essential problem with divination. When you seek after a source of spiritual power that is not from God, you are rejecting the Lord. It's just like what Jesus said about money. You cannot serve two masters. So if you are serving the one who gives you power when you want it, rather than waiting for the Lord who would give it on his terms, then you are rejecting the Lord. You are choosing sides, if you will. You've sought to tap into a power that Satan offers, and in doing so, you've rejected your dependence on God. Now, our culture, I think, particularly in some circles of the Christian culture, not in all circles, certainly, but in some, has become obsessed with just that source of power. It's as if... We judge our worthiness before God on whether or not he's granted us these kinds of supernatural powers, which Scripture makes clear are an exception to the rule, not the norm. But we turn it the other way around. In many Christian circles, you'll hear people told, if you do not have the ability to do certain supernatural things, it is proof that you do not have enough faith. Or it is proof that you do not have the Holy Spirit filling you, which they consider to be something different than simply indwelling. These frankly, are not scripturally based. If you look at the scripture and the total testimony of scripture, you come to a recognition very quickly that though God has the power to grant these kinds of things and does on occasion, it is not his tendency to do so. And particularly outside the the days of the early church. There was a distinct difference in the days of the early church versus now for why God would choose to give those powers. And we ignore that to our own detriment. Secondly, I'll tell you, we ought to show some discernment about what we approve. In other words, it's fine to say, well, Steve, this is sort of boring because I don't really go to Satan daily and ask him for power. So I'm not the one you're talking to. Well, fair enough. But remember, Satan comes as an angel of light. He rarely shows up in front of you dressed in black with horns and and, and a red tail and says, I have power. Would you like it? What he does instead is come at you kind of obliquely from the side when you're not expecting it. So depending on what you approve... You may find yourself having stepped into this world without even realizing it. Video games, music, movies, different kinds of parties or different kinds of settings where the people there generally approve of the thing you say you disapprove of. Or they glorify it. Or they themselves have actually tapped into its power. And by our close association, though we may not approve it uh, in, in an overt way, we are approving it in a subtle way. Paul says this in Philippians 1.9. And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. We should be careful through discernment to approve the things that are excellent so that we might be blameless until the day of Christ. Do you see what he's saying? We can be due blame. It can be sin to approve something that is not excellent, that is not not pleasing to God, in other words. And that brings us to the second thing Jesus granted the disciples. He gave them exosia, the dominion, the authority. Paul tells us in Ephesians that this world that we live in now is the property of the enemy for a time. A very famous verse. Remember this, Ephesians 2.2. He says, You formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. We've all heard that probably, right? You know the word power? When he says the prince of the power of the air, the word power, exosia. It's the same word in Greek. You could just as easily translate it this way. The prince of the authority of the air. Or the prince of the jurisdiction of the air. Even though this world has been redeemed by Christ's blood on the cross, Christ has redeemed it by his sinless death, he is still awaiting the appointed time to exercise that authority. You see the distinction? Though Christ has all authority now, given to him by the Father, he is not exercising it all. He has waited for an appointed time when he will come down and he will exercise his authority here in person in a messianic kingdom, in a millennial kingdom, a thousand year reign on earth where he will be king of the earth, visibly, physically. But until that day, he is giving Satan a certain amount of time for purposes that God has in mind. So while we wait for that day, he is given authority, given jurisdiction, or allowed, another way to say it, I guess, is he's allowed Satan to maintain a certain amount of authority and jurisdiction now in this world. 
So if the disciples had been given the power that they were given, but not the authority, what would have happened? Well, they needed both. It's sort of like saying to a state trooper, you have the power to arrest someone. You have handcuffs. You have a gun. You have the patrol car. You have physical strength and training. You have all the tools at your disposal, all the power you need to subdue a car thief. But as that car thief drives across the state line into the next state, can that trooper arrest them any longer? With all that power, they've lost the authority. And they're powerless to stop that thief. Now, in the real world, they call their buddy down the road and they get him anyway, right? But in this example, the point I'm making, of course, is that in this example, if the disciples had all this miraculous power, but they did not have the authority, then when they had gone out to try to use it, they would have confronted an enemy who was more powerful than they and real and still maintained the authority to stop them, still had control. They would have either been subdued by his power, they would have been thwarted by what the enemy did, they would have been either the enemy or his, or his agents, uh, you know, putting obstacles in their way. Perhaps as soon as they tried to heal, the enemy would have stepped in and brought new disease. In other words, they could have done things that either confused or, or uh, completely stopped what the disciples were trying to do in their teaching. But Jesus said, no, I give you authority. I'm going to let you have the opportunity to be successful. By the way, one of the reasons that the enemy can create such a convincing demonstration and bring so many people into a deluded understanding of the truth is because he does have both power and authority in this world. You know, he can fool people into thinking that the power they see as he gives it over to somebody is power from God. That's where many cults get started. Many cults get started because a man has tapped into supernatural power from the enemy and is able to do some fairly miraculous things. And it's hard to deny their miraculous nature. It's hard to sit there and say, well, I think that's a trick. They, people see things happen and they say, you know what? I know that was real. And anyone with power like that, he's got to be from God. No, he doesn't. That's what Scripture teaches more than anything. No, he doesn't. No, the enemy has power too. False teachers, agents of the enemy, men like that can come in in God's name and fool people because the audiences they have are more interested in the signs and the powers than they are in the truth of the word. And that's where many... Christian movements or so-called Christian movements run into real problem. When signs, when wonders, when miraculous activity on the stage means more to us than simply the truth of the word, then we are ripe for the enemy to come in and show us something spectacular and pull us off truth. Because we're looking for the wrong thing. It's one of the most important things to understand about this passage Christians don't generally have these kinds of powers or authority unless God grants them. And they only come when he grants them, when he desires it, for a limited purpose. And they are not something every believer should expect or depend on, much less demand. If God wants it to be that way, it's because the gospel is to be heard and believed on the basis of faith, not on the basis of what can be seen or proven by some specific power. Not to the satisfaction of a skeptic. Do you understand what I'm saying? If God were going to bring faith, he's going to do it on the basis of what you hear through his word, because that's what he says he's given us. Paul reminds us of this in Romans 10:17 when he says, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Faith comes by hearing, Paul says, not by seeing, not by feeling, not by some demonstration of power, but by hearing. He says, to believe is to hope in something unseen. In Romans, he says that as well. God tells us in his scripture, he's not pleased to reveal himself to those who demand proof before they believe. If you have somebody who says, I'll believe this Christian message of yours. Just show me something. Give me a miracle. Show me, you know, pray for me to have some money come into my bank account. When it does, I'll know you're telling the truth. Is God capable of doing that? Of course. Is he likely to do that? Absolutely not. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, 21, For since in the wisdom of God, the world, through its wisdom, did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for a sign. Greeks search for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. To Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jew and Greek, is Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. 
He chooses to save those, it says, through a belief in something that seems foolish to the world. He's not given us these powers now because they run counter to his purpose. If he gave every Christian the ability that these apostles had for this short time, no one would care one bit about this, would they? Why would we ever go to this? What point would there be? We'd be too awestruck by all the amazing things people can do with these new powers. And if I wanted Christianity, it would be because I want your power. There'd be no God in any of this. It would be all me. What do I get? Oh, I get these powers. Let me go out and do my parlor trick for somebody. God says, we're not going to do that. For those who believe it will be because they believe something that the world thinks is foolish. It will be designed that way so that the glory is God's when the faith comes. When a Christian believes or is taught that they should want or that they should expect these powers, it's not just unbiblical, it's also dangerous. What we're saying essentially is, whatever happened to the apostles, whatever happened to the early church, that's what should happen to us. Think about the nonsensical nature of that argument for a minute. I find this interesting because I would think more people would see this automatically. Why is that nonsensical? Well, because that's like saying the Apostle Thomas had the chance to stick his hands in Jesus' side. Therefore, we should all have the ability to stick our hands in Jesus' side. Or the Apostle Peter was crucified upside down when he died. So we should all have the ability to be, oh, wait a minute, I don't want that one. You see how it works? How many different ways can you live a Christian life? As many different Christians as there has been. So why do we assume that when we know my life is different from your life and your life is different from her life, why do we assume then that because it was written about the apostles, it should be true for us? That's like saying whatever happens to any Christian should happen to me. It's an absurd statement. God never sets about in his word any rule. Generally, there is no statement you can find in scripture that says we will all do such and such and have it mean all Christians. We generalize statements that were given to specific people on a specific time and make it our own when that's not what Scripture offers. Why was the early church built with these powers then? Doesn't that beg the question? Why did the early church have it if we don't have them now? And by the way, I'm not saying God can't give them now. I'm not saying he doesn't give them now. I'm saying he doesn't typically give them now. While in the early church, they were far more common. Powers like raising from the dead, healing people, for example. Why would those tendencies have been greater then than now? Well, think about the early church. They didn't have the New Testament. The early church did not have the Acts of the Apostles as history. They didn't have the testimony of 2,000 years of church saints and the Holy Spirit indwelling each of them and what God has done through them. In other words, they didn't have the life of experience we have looking back that we can show proof as, as a Christian that we have trust in God and we can have His Holy Spirit and we can look to Him to do great things through us. The early church had none of that. So as the message is to be given out, there was an opportunity for God to demonstrate its truth by bringing power with it. Special power, unique power, power for a time and for a purpose. But those purposes have been met. Now his desire is that he be glorified through his word. Because that is what he chooses to use. All right, so that's enough on that. Though we can't presume to have the powers that God has given the early disciples, we can certainly learn from what he taught them when it came time to go out and evangelize, can't we? Let's look at what he said, those specifics again. He said, don't take a staff. Mark's account actually says, perhaps take a staff. So you might look at it as though Christ didn't want them to, but he was willing to give on that point if they really wanted to have a walking stick. Why would a staff be an issue? You know what we're talking about, right? Like the Moses staff, the, the walking stick. But this was very important in that day because you walked everywhere. You walked everywhere. It's like your car. It's like your driving gloves, it's like your sunglasses. It was like, you know, you never, you didn't go, it's like your car keys. You couldn't go without it if you were going to take a walk. Because in the rocky conditions in which they walked, it was very easy to slip and fall on the kind of footwear they used. And so having a stick could make all the difference between being injured or not being injured. So why would he say don't take a stick? Well, on a short walk, a stick is actually a burden. It's an impediment. Sort of like driving your car to go across the street to see your neighbor. You know, it's actually easier just to walk without, you know, to, to, to go without your car if the distance is really short. But if it's a longer distance, you would want to have this walking stick with you. If you just start walking a short distance, it's kind of in the way. You'd have to find somewhere to keep it, and it's, it's probably more of a burden. So depending on the length of the walk, you'd have a different approach to whether you needed a stick or not. Now, does this suggest they're going to have a short walk? No, that's not the point. The point is they don't know what's coming. They're not to make any presumptions. They're not to make any assumptions about how long this walk is going to be. Don't take your staff. Don't be prepared for a long walk. You may have a long walk, but don't, don't assume you will. He says, don't pack a bag, meaning a suitcase, basically. Don't take anything with you. Don't take any clothes. Again, if you bring a bag with you, if somebody shows up at your door with a suitcase, 
What's the first thing that goes through your mind? How long are they planning on staying in my house? You know, I was inviting you to dinner and you brought a suitcase. Hmm. See the point? Don't bring a suitcase because we don't want you to assume how long you're going to be staying anywhere. Don't bring any food. Don't bring any money. Don't bring anything that you would have a dependency upon or would give you some opportunity to presume what you're going to go do or where you're going to go. Be completely unprepared. Even the idea of no tunic. You know, men often wore two tunics, two, a lighter undergarment and a heavier outer garment. He here is actually using the word for the undergarment. So he's saying, don't take an extra pack of underwear. That's really what he's saying. Moms, I know you wouldn't agree with this, but he's being told, don't take any extra underwear for the trip. Jesus tells the disciples, finally, expect to be housed in the homes of the people you minister to. This is pretty unusual, too, when you think about it. It'd be like you walking into a strange city, going door to door, preaching, no plans for where you're going to be that night. And your assumption is, before the day's over, one of those homes is going to offer you a place to stay. Pretty gutsy, isn't it? Today, we'd have a hard time assuming that was even going to happen. And then he says, if you don't receive this welcome that you're expecting, go outside the town, shake the dust off your feet. That's a very condemning thing to do. Remember, one of the first things you do to somebody if you're a good host and they come in your home is what? Wash their feet. So if you've left the town, having been in that town all day and your feet are still dirty, that's a pretty telling sign about the lack of hospitality you've encountered in that town. So if you still have dust on your feet to shake off, it was probably the biggest insult you could provide to somebody as a home, as somebody's home, in other words, as a host, to say that they did not show good hospitality. It was a tremendous judgment against them. What's he doing now with all this? He's training them in several disciplines all at the same time. First, he's training them on how to go out and spread the good news, right? Get out there, go out, try it. It's a good reminder to all of us that you know they're going to be armed with this power and this authority, this ability to catch people's attention, and we may not have all of that, but you know that doesn't mean that we aren't in the same position they are in many respects. If you aren't practicing it, if I'm not practicing it, it doesn't get any better. Do you ever get the sense sometimes that there are people who are really called into that and really gifted into that? And that's true. But that can be your excuse or my excuse to say, but that's not me. Well, how good do you think these guys were? I mean, honestly, tax collectors, fishermen. How good do you think they really were when they went out the first time? I have to believe they stumbled over their words. I'm sure they were embarrassed. I'm sure a few times they tried to do the, the healing and somebody got healed and then they didn't know what to do next. They had everyone surrounding them looking for more healing and they were trying to tell them about Jesus and sometimes it worked, sometimes it didn't. They probably got shouted down at times by people who didn't believe them. Do you imagine the intimidation of it all? They didn't know what they were doing, but yet they did it. If they can do it, we can do it. And the goal here is to practice, not to get perfect. To practice. If we're not even trying, though, we would be equivalent to an apostle staring at Jesus in the moment and saying, you know what, I just don't think I'm up to that. Second thing he was trying to show them was the rejection they were going to face. No doubt they faced rejection. We're going to hear more about that later. But they needed to understand that 99 rejections in a row didn't change the fact that they needed to go to number 100 and expect success. Every single person you go to should be one of, I expect success, okay, you rejected me anyway, move on, next one. How about you? No thought that, you know, after 99, I just don't got it, I need to stop. That wasn't the way the seed was spread. Remember the parable of the sower? Throw the seed everywhere, and you don't care what happens after that. That's up to God. In 1 Corinthians 3, 6, Paul says this, I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth, so that neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything but God who causes the growth. If you really think that, then your evangelism desire goes way up because you realize you're not measuring your success on the basis of who responds in the moment. You may never know who responds. You're going to get credit for throwing around a lot of seed, not for how many people respond. That's not up to you. And then finally, I think the last thing he's teaching them, and the one that maybe we need to learn the most, he's saying, rely on God, not just for the power and the authority, he gave them that specifically, but rely on God to sustain you. Rely on God for power and authority and success, as we said, but also rely on him to sustain you in the effort. Jesus' instructions told them to presume nothing about their journey. He says, you know, if you have a plan, if you think you're going to go here, 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 I'm going to leave four days' worth of food, I'm going to have to have, so much, I'm going to have to have a walking stick, clearly, for that distance I'm traveling. I need to have probably an extra change of clothes, and I'll probably need so much money because I'll need it for this, that, and the other. You've just got a plan that's got a beginning, a middle, and an end. Do you know if it's God's plan or not? 
You didn't even ask if you took that approach because all you did was set out your plan. He says, as soon as you start to do that, you begin to work your plan and not God's plan. So he says, rely on him. Let him lead. Don't start working your own plan. Don't have plan B. Don't have a backup. Don't have anywhere to sleep. Don't have any money. Don't have any hope at all except for the one God happens to provide. Simply trust. Why do you think that's important? I mean, you've heard people say that before. Have you ever asked why? Why do I have to do it that way? Can't God bless it if I'm doing it a different way? Well, certainly. But we hear in Matthew 10.10 of this same account, Matthew's account of this same moment as Christ sends out the disciples. Matthew adds one little detail. In 10.10, he says, the worker is worthy of his support. You've often heard that quoted before, I hope. In other words, this is a two-way street we're talking about. It's not all about us as the worker. It's not all about you going out. It's also about the one you're serving. On the one hand, you know, you're supposed to be dependent on those that you minister to, but they themselves, the ones you minister to, they need the opportunity to experience the blessing of supporting somebody who's bringing them the good news. It is a blessing. You know, there is truly a blessing in being able to reward those through whom God brings you something you need spiritually. I can remember a story in my own experience with a preacher on the radio, I won't name, who had begun his ministry at a very early point. He was just getting on the radio, but I didn't know that. I was not even a believer yet, although I was being pulled in by God, by his word. And my wife suggested I start listening to this man on the radio. And when I'm listening to him, I did the same thing you would do. I assumed he'd been on the radio for 20 years. Right? How would I know that he had just shown up about a year earlier or even less? And he was here in San Antonio. We were one of the very first places that he put his show on, although he's not from San Antonio. And we started listening and we started feeling, I started feeling a conviction over the fact that he was teaching the word. He was doing it in a powerful way and it was changing my life. And we started to send him some support. Now, we didn't send him much. We didn't have much. But we kept it going month to month. We just kind of let it keep going. And we moved from San Antonio to Colorado at one point and he was on the radio there. So I just kept supporting his ministry from Colorado. One time I got a call from one of the men in his ministry and out of the blue and said, Steve, we're, this, this preacher is going to be in Colorado, and he's going to host a breakfast for some of his supporters. Would you like to come? I thought, man, it must be a pretty big breakfast if someone like me gets invited, right? Because I'm sure I'm nobody to him, I'm sure. So I said, sure, I'd love to come. We go, we go to this breakfast, and during the breakfast, the preacher presents some slides of his ministry, talking about the funding and some of the events and some of the initiatives, and he showed some financial data that showed how much money he was collecting from each of the major cities where he was presenting his message, just to sort of inform people about the budget and so on. And I looked at the town that we lived in, and I looked at the amount that was next to that, and I thought, I'm giving like 40% of that amount. 40% of what he was needing to be on the radio in that one town was coming out of my pocket. Now, don't hear me wrong here. I'm not patting myself on the back. It was a small amount of money, and I had no idea what impact it was having until that moment, and it didn't change what I wanted to do. It wasn't that I felt prideful about it at all. It was a shock. The shock was, I never realized how much God could do with just a little bit of obedience. I thought I was a drop in a bucket, and in some sense I am. We all are. But in that one place, for that one man's effort at getting the word out, I made a pretty substantial difference. Now, if I hadn't done my part, God would have brought along somebody else. He didn't depend on me. It was my blessing to contribute. It wasn't that I made something possible that God couldn't have done otherwise. It was that God made something possible for me by my obedience. And in seeing that, I recognize something that I think you're seeing go on right here. The worker is worthy of his support. We should look at what's being done for us by God through another individual or through a group of people as an opportunity for us to return in kind the blessing of support. They get edified by the fact that they are seeing support for what they're doing. But likewise, we get benefited because we get the opportunity to see how God works through us, too. It's a two-way street. So... If the disciples would have remained so self-sufficient and so independent, they had packed their own lunch, if they had had their own means to pay for a hotel every night, if they had done all those things, they not only would have perhaps been less willing to hear God in his direction on what they should be doing in the ministry, but they would have denied somebody else the blessing of supporting them as well. That self-sufficiency robs us all from some of the joy and the strength that comes from God directing us. Do you notice that when you're self-sufficient, you're not listening for God very much either? I don't know about you, but I know that's part of what affects my life. When our tummies are full, when our closet is full, when our garage is full, 
when we have all the things we need, are we really looking to God on a daily basis for provision? I mean, really, do we think about it that way? We're so self-satisfied, I would argue, that God, if he ever did choose to direct us, we wouldn't even be listening. We really aren't in tune to looking for him to do things. Think of it the other way around. If he stripped all of that away from you, if you had nowhere to live, you had no income, you had no food in your house, how attentive would you be to small work of the Holy Spirit, like a neighbor who invites you over, or a neighbor you don't know inviting you for dinner? If you had no food in the house, would you take that invitation? If your house is full of food and your tummy's full and you don't really know the person and it's not really convenient on your schedule, do you think you would go? And in the midst of being there, maybe that's the time that God wants you to bring the, the Spirit's message to them, bring the gospel into that moment, but you had to be there to do it? I think that happens to us a lot more than we realize. I think there's a lot of times where because we're so self-sufficient, we never see God opening a door that if we were to take it, we would have an opportunity to minister. The greatest impediment, I think, to our spiritual growth in this culture is our wealth and our self-sufficiency. Just like the church in Laodicea out of the book of Revelation. We're blind to our own spiritual need because our physical needs are so met. Let's go back into Luke. Luke 9. We'll finish with two more verses for the day and then we'll go to communion. When the apostles returned, they gave an account of him, or to him, of all that they had done. Taking them with him, he withdrew by himself to a city called Bethesda. But the crowds were aware of this and followed him. And welcoming them, he began speaking to them about the kingdom of God and curing those who had need of healing. All right, so Jesus has sent them out. He sent them out in this opportunity to learn. They've learned. They've used the power and authority he gave them. They've obviously been supported somehow. We don't know how long they were away. They've come back and they're excited, right? They're probably babbling like little kids. Let me tell you what happened to me. Let me tell you what happened to me. Oh, and then I went to here and then this happened and then I healed them and then this happened and then this other guy came and it was really bad. But then I did this. And you, you know how kids do that? I have a feeling that was a big part of that reunion that took place. The excitement from the apostles over actually experiencing what Jesus had been talking about. Now, it says here that after they all got back together, he retreated. He took them by himself to a city called Bethesda. It's funny. The word Bethesda means city of fish. I'm not sure I would have picked that name if I was picking names for my town, but that was City of Fish. That becomes a lot more significant here in a moment. Why do they retreat? Well, in Mark's account of this same experience, he adds this in Mark 6.31. He says to them, Come away by yourselves to a secluded place and rest for a while, for there were many people coming and going, and they did not even have time to eat. In other words, They had been so successful in their little foray out into the world, into the area of Galilee, preaching and healing, that they had brought crowds back with them. And now the crowds are pressing in on Jesus and on the group, and they need to get away for just long enough to eat. Do you see evidence of how successful that ministry had been in just that short time? People had flocked back. And the metaphor is so obvious, I don't even think I need to spell it out. Christ sends us out, and by our work in ministry, we lead them back to Christ. Right? We talk about that all the time. I led someone to Christ. And I think that's an appropriate way to say it. They're being brought to faith by the Holy Spirit, not by us, but God works through us to lead them back to Christ. And now there's this huge gathering. In fact, if you've read ahead in the story, you know where we're going next. There's such a huge gathering in the city of fish that at the end of this day, They're all hungry and there's nothing to feed them with except a few loaves of bread and a few fishes. And what does Christ do to those we lead back to him? He provides. He provides for them. And we're going to go a lot more into that next week, but you already know that story. Most people know it so well. You can see now how it fits. The disciples, having been sent out, bring back a crowd that's hungry and they followed Jesus much in the same way that the the disciples went out. They didn't come with a plan. They probably don't have their bags. They certainly didn't have any food. They probably don't have any money. And they don't need it. Eternally, even temporally, they don't need it if they've got Christ. He's not going to leave them without the bare necessities at the very least. And he'll provide that next week. That's what we should expect too as we end and we get ready to go into communion. If our ministry is to be obedient to our calling, then whatever form it takes, it has to bear fruit on the basis that we lead people to Christ. Not to a church, not to a Bible study. I mean, those are means to an end. If we are doing the work of the kingdom, then we are going out with power and authority in whatever degree God provides it. We are preaching the good news. 
We are going where he tells us to go, and we are leading them back to Christ. In, In figurative terms, we're pointing them to the Messiah, not to a lifestyle, not to a set of rules, not even to a church specifically. And with that, we let the Lord take over, because he will provide. That's our job. Next week, we're going to see, I said, as Jesus feeds this crowd with those fishes. And I hope that that's how you see the role we play as well in this church. That we give opportunity to feed spiritually through the word those who God brings to us. Because that's ultimately the ministry that I think matters. Let's go to prayer as we finish in the word. And then I'll call up those who will help us with distribution of the communion. And I'll say a few words about communion as we get started. Let's go to prayer. Father, I give you thanks as always for the word, for the opportunity to be going through this gospel in such a methodic way. We know, Father, that uh, some days the message hits home. Some days, Father, the message may seem to pass us by. But, Father, that's the nature of your word. It convicts us of sin, but it does so according to your plan. I know, Father, that for whom it may have been the purpose that we went through this lesson today, that person, as they hear this message, will know it. And for those, Father, who may have thought, well, it was interesting, but it wasn't for me. Then, Father, I pray that when the day is right, you will bring the message to their heart in a way that is meaningful. Or that you will give them the opportunity, perhaps, to minister to someone else for whom this message was intended. We do not know, Father, how you work. We pray our attention and our devotion to study will be used mightily in some way. Because we all desire, Father, to bring them back to a knowledge of Christ. For we were brought there ourselves one day in the past, and it is now, Father, our call to do the same. Let us be equipped. Let us be given the power and the authority to do it. Let us have a dependence on you, Father, a willingness to hear you and to obey and respond. And, Father, since the seed is in your control as to how it grows, I pray, Father, you would give us growth, that we would see, if nothing else, Father, but just for an encouragement, we would see how you would grow it how you would bring believers into the family of God by how we are used. We thank you for the opportunity. And Lord, in all we do, we give you thanks and glory as we go into a time of communion with you as you've commanded. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.